welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. Um, an extremely red-eye one, 2.30 a.m. call, couldn't sleep, been sitting here thinking about uh, getting some of this stuff done, had a bunch of crap piling up, so I'm just, I had to get out of bed and start doing work, so uh, got a bunch of cool questions here, I actually printed these off uh, two days ago, but then ended up right about the time I was going to do my podcast, I ended up having some other guys call me and ask if I'd do their podcast. So I ended up doing a podcast for the guys at Working Class Bowhunter. Um, so you might want to check that out. Seemed like a pretty cool podcast. I like what those guys are doing. Um, always like to help people out too. So now I've got to get back into mine and help all you guys out. Got some cool questions here. First one's going to be from Grant Taylor. And He's asking or saying, I've been to all the bow shops within 50 miles of my house. I really feel like none of them have done a thorough job helping me set up my bow. And some of the concerns that I have um, is when I ask them about my cam tuning, my cam lean, and they just don't seem to help. So really the thing you should do, Grant, first and foremost, is go on the... Um, knock on archery youtube channel or just search youtube for knocked and ready to rock three how to time a bow that's um one of the segments that i did in the first knocked and ready to rock segment that was um specific to bow building and i talk with you about cam positioning cam rotation and also um cam lean because this is really important your cam lean has a pretty quick effect on your left and right results Um, there's a lot of people that have struggled in the most recent years with not being able to get rid of a right or a left tear and you can change those tears by adjusting your split yoke Um, some of the newer bows out there that have some cam lean um, if they don't have the option to adjust that cam lean, then you can get some pretty erratic arrow flight. Um, so I really like to have the option to do that. You know, back um, you know back many years ago, Hoyt actually had like a floating yoke system. Um, their their yoke or their Y, the Y part of their cables. Um, it actually there were two parts to it there was a six inch long part that went from limb to limb and it fed through another cable and it was what was called a floating yoke because it it allowed itself to kind of slide back and forth according to what it wanted to do Um, some people like that because it took a little bit of um, your your lean away because it would the cam would naturally balance however it didn't give you the option to actually adjust it um, according to maybe what was always perfect. 
So I really like to have a split yoke system um, that allows you to put twists in the right side or the left side of the yoke. And it seems like most of the bows today, you can do that simply by making your adjustments on the top limb um, or the top cam, and you can get your paper tear how you want it. Um, however, there are some bows that don't have that, and you're kind of stuck with the natural system of how that cam is leaning because you can't adjust each side. And in those cases, depending on the bow, you kind of have a couple different options. Um, one, if you have a split limb type system, um, for example, a Hoyt has split limbs, so there's four actual limbs. Um, a lot of times you can try flipping those limbs to where you take your right limb, flip it over to the left, um, or you can try to take your bottom limbs, flip them around to the top. Um, sometimes, even though those limbs are made out of one solid plate um, and they're all all four off the same piece of material, theoretically, there is, for whatever reason, still some that might lean a certain way than the other. So in that case, flipping those limbs around can give you slightly different um, cam leans if you're having trouble with that tuning. Otherwise, you can also just try switching your um, cam spacers around too. For example, um, a lot of bows have a thinner washer on one side, thicker one on the other side of the cam. And you can, by adjusting that position of your cam in the limb itself, you can adjust how much it's leaning because, you know, if you think about it, when you're, when you're bending a limb, the string and the cam is sitting on that axle. So you would think the closer to the center that it sits, the more balanced and the, the straighter that limb would be at full draw. But what kind of messes it up is the fact that your cable rod is pulling your cables to the side. So in a way, you have two different you know, cables coming off your cams and it's being pulled to the side so it's the lean is coming from the torque of your cable system or your cable rod and that's why a lot of um, the newer style bows are going to a cable rod system that has give to it that allows it to flex at full draw so that you minimize that torque um, like for example on my Hoyt's they call it the ZT, um, the zero torque um, cable rod system. And the older style systems, which was a straight rod, um, they had more torsional, you know, twisting issues. That's why back in the day, they kind of went to um, a cable rod that had what it was called a dog leg cable rod so it had a bend in it which allowed you to loosen that cable rod and adjust it to where you could have your cables closer to the inside of your bow or you could turn it to where you could get it further away um, a lot of people did a little micro tuning with their system based off how you know where they would angle their cable rod um, 
all that stuff starts to factor in. But the main thing for you is going to be just making sure that your cams are in sync, um, which in that video, you're going to be able to see that. You want to make sure that both of your cams are for sure touching uh, the cable as they come to full draw at the same time. Um, in some cases, people prefer to have the top cam touch just a little bit sooner. And I'm talking barely sooner, like maybe a millimeter sooner than the bottom. The reason for that is because with some of the systems, um, including the cam and a half system, you'll find that there's there's a little bit more pressure on the power cable which goes to the bottom cam um, so even though you pull the bow back and they both touch at the same time drawing back they both cables touch the cam at the same time or the stops at the same time once you hold it at full draw for a little while and you start to let that bow forward what you'll find is the top cam will actually come away from the cable sooner than the bottom um, and what people have found is that when the two cams are coming off the cables at the same time, you have better grouping. Um, and this is kind of spurs into something else that people call creep tuning. And creep tuning is when people will take a bow and intentionally draw it back hard against the wall and then slightly let forward just a little bit so that you know those cams are just starting to come off of that the cable um, the cable stops that are on the cams and then they'll shoot and what they'll find is if you creep tune properly even if you have a slightly weaker shot which is kind of what you're trying to um, duplicate by creep tuning you're trying to duplicate when you're not pulling super hard against the back wall of your cam for example if you have like a weak shot where you're aiming too long and you start to let up just a little bit and you fire you want to make sure that your arrows are still hitting center and not starting to hit high which is common if you have an improper creep tune um, so you definitely want to make sure they're touching at the same time. I would say the most common thing that I see on people regarding their cam timing is their top cam not touching when the bottom cam is. So it almost feels like you have this spongy wall or like you can feel the bow kind of come to a stop, but then you can kind of pull it just a 16th or an eighth inch more and you kind of get another stop that's an indicator of having improper cam timing or cam synchronization um, utilizing a mirror can help if you draw back and feel your bow come to the stop if you're looking into a mirror you can normally see that side of your bow where the cam stops um, touch the cables it's going to be on the outside of your bow not the inside because um, on your bow when you draw back your string is going to be always be in the side of the, the cam that's closest to you whereas the cables are going to be on the outside of the cam 
closest to your cable rod or closest to the outside of your riser so you kind of have to have a mirror in order to see that or if you have a shooting machine or if you have like a last chance um archery boat draw um draw machine you can draw back and get it to stop um, it's always best though to do it when it's in your hand and when you're using a release aid because on some cam systems drawing back with your fingers you can alter the rotation of your cams or the synchronization of your cams um, and on some systems and some bows you can actually alter how that looks as well just based off your grip position so if you pull a bow back on a draw board and you're pulling from a different position than what you would if you were clipping your release on it'll kind of give you a false look at the synchronization on some cam systems um, the Hoyts don't do that but on some binary systems some two cam systems um, you will have that uh, with single cams Really, the what I found in my years of working with single cams is that your top idler wheel is what you really want to focus on having correct. Now, a single cam bow doesn't have proper um, synchronization since it's only one cam. You're not synchronizing it to anything. However, single cam systems do have proper cam rotation. And by that, I mean... When you have a single cam, if you add twists to the cable, you start to over-rotate that cam and pull the cam to where it's in increasing the tension on the string. Um, or if you under-rotate the cam, which means you would take twists out of your cable or add twists to your string, you'll start to under-rotate the cam, meaning there's less pressure against the string um, from the cam those with a single cam bow you actually do multiple things when you make that adjustment you're not only um, adjusting the rotation of the cam but you also quickly change your peak weight and you start to quickly change the knock travel because with single cam bows or most of the single cam bows that I've worked with um, if you're over rotating the cam you start to raise the knock travel as you draw back and then as you under rotate the cam you start to lower your knock travel as it draws back um, if you don't know what knock travel is it might seem a little bit deep for you in what I'm saying but if you do know what knock travel is um, you know or I guess I could just explain it knock travel is when you take a bow and you fixate the riser in a solid fixed position and then you grab the string from the pulling point um, and as you draw that string back at a, on a perfectly straight line um, which is important that I say that because a lot of people that have homemade draw boards as they crank the draw board their rope continues to stack in one direction so you're actually pulling that string in one direction as you're drawing it back. And that doesn't give you a true um, indicator of knock travel. 
in order to do it properly the riser has to be fixated the string needs to be grabbed in one position in the pulling position most people do that exactly um, 90 degrees or right in the dead center of the burger button hole and then as that's drawn it needs to be getting pulled on a perfectly horizontal plane um, and then as that's happening on the draw boards that are built correctly um, normally there's a pin that will go right on the um, the part that's holding your string you can put a ballpoint pin through there or there's I've seen different ones but anyway as it draws back it etches a line and it that line will start to go up or sometimes they go up then they go down then they go back up which isn't good um, some of the some of the early Botex had a had a terrible S travel um, which would put like what's called an S bend in the paradox of your arrow as you'd fire your arrow in slow motion that knock travel starts to immediately have that same type of effect on an arrow as it's flexing so it would actually create this weird s bend that would radiate through the entire shaft of the arrow and it would look like this wave going instead of instead of a normal archer's paradox with a compound bow and a release your arrow would bend up in the middle of the arrow and then it would start to flex down and then it'd bend up and it flex down but the two ends are always kind of in the center and the arrow is just bending in the middle up and down concave convex concave convex but when you have a real wacky knock travel you start to create this real wacky paradox in the arrow that creates this real funky s um paradox like a like i said like a snake it almost looks like you can see how a snake slithers that's what happens when these arrows come out when you have a real poor cam design um, a lot of this stuff is like so far um, out of the mainstream that most people don't even understand this but there's there's big differences in bows that are engineered and cams that are engineered properly there's certainly ones that that have been on the market in year in you know in over the years that have really good speed um or you know they may claim no you know no timing or whatever but these cams that are designed that way tend to always lose efficiency and also lose some of the things that are critical to tuning and that is having a good knock travel which Hoyt builds their bows to have a slight rise in their knock travel so as that arrow is drawn back it slowly comes up and is slightly higher at full draw than it is at rest and the reason they do that is because they really believe that it's important to give an arrow a desired direction so what they're doing is they're making that arrow as it's being fired it the, it is continually being pushed down onto the arrow rest as it rides through that cycle and that's that's a good thing because back in the day when 
if you can remember some of the very first um, campaigns that Matthews did, that was a very good marketing campaign. There was a lot of, you know, we marketed it and it was, it sold bows because bow hunters kind of just put two and two together, even though they weren't technically equal in four, they were just assuming that what we were claiming was better. We weren't, we weren't ever saying it is better. We were just saying we had it. But um, at the time, what we did was we marketed um, perfectly straight knock travel. And this was because other bows on the market weren't doing it. We had bows that would draw a perfectly straight line from point A to point B. And, at, and originally, we thought that that was better and that it was actually more efficient and it would push an arrow through better and most bow hunters would immediately think okay zero knock travel means you're shooting a broadhead perfectly straight and that and we would kind of relate those two we would say you know you don't you don't have a misdirection for your broadhead or your broadhead is always flying perfectly straight however once super slow motion cameras got better and better what we started to find out was when you had perfectly straight knock travel the arrow would not have continual down pressure on the arrow rest and there were times where it would actually kind of skip on the arrow rest where it would ride the arrow rest but then it would kind of come off of it a little bit and it would go back down on it and it wasn't consistent on how it would do that. So what you started to find was people would actually change the way they've rigged up their knocks or their loops in order to change their pressure on how that arrow would push. So if you look back, back when I shot um, my Matthews, I like to shoot a bigger tied knock on the bottom than I did on the top and what that does is by having more spacing under your arrow or a thicker knock under your arrow it's equivalent to like trying to grab you know grab your arrow with one finger or grab your string with one finger under your string or grab your finger your string with two fingers under or three fingers under the the more space there is under your arrow the more downward pressure you put you actually put on that arrow and it helps keep it on the arrow rest that's why like with the nas program um we decided back when the nas program was being done and the first genesis bows were being designed that we would um, teach the nas uh, program to have three fingers under the arrow because what we found is as soon as kids started to put one finger over the top of the arrow and only two under, it was easy to twist the arrow off the rest. And that's because you didn't have as much downward pressure. So we started just having them do the Boy Scout sign, put three, those three fingers under the arrow, and it, it, all the kids were able to keep their arrows on the rest. So with your knock travel, um, changing your loops and how you configure your loops also started to slightly change your knock travel as well. Um, I know I'm going pretty deep here in, in what this cam timing and cam lean does, but the point being on this whole thing is that every bow 
is a little bit different and kind of has its little phoenix. Um, that Knocked and Ready to Rock series that I did um, kind of just really talks about the nuts and bolts and the real basic elements of it. Um, you know, it also, I can tell you, if you're focusing on some of the main few bow companies out there, um, they're designing cams that can tune. The other thing you might want to, if any of you out there are having issues with bows that are tuning, or if you're considering buying a new bow, um, I would just really take the advice from the archery shops on, you know, sometimes just an easy question is what, what bows are you setting up that are giving you the best tune? Because there's times where some of these engineers, they may design a bow for some of these smaller companies that looks cool. But once I get them and I start to play around with some of these things, I just realize how inefficient and behind the times they are on understanding some of this stuff that's really critical to being able to get a compound bow to to be efficient um, meaning it gives you more energy out than what you're putting in and it also is able to set up easy without frustration um, main thing is you want both of those cams for sure touching at the same time when you come to full draw um, if you want to mess around with creep tuning uh, I would welcome you to but when it comes to your left and right, if you're having a left and right tuning issue, first thing you really should check is, you know, if you do make a, a movement or an adjustment to your arrow rest and your tear stays exactly the same, then that's usually a pretty good indication that you're either having a, a contact issue where your arrow's contacting something either on your face or as it's passing through your bow, or it could be your actual cam lean and in that case um, mess around with your yoke system um, what i found is you know i can normally adjust the top yoke slightly to where i can really manipulate those tears through paper um, and i think you'll probably be pretty well off if you just focus on those things um, and don't be afraid to just, you know, I, I loaded that whole Knocked and Ready to Rock series in, an, in a full-length video um, as well. So I would welcome you just to watch that, even if you don't work on your own stuff, to give you a basic knowledge of that. And that way you can always, at least if you're watching someone else work on your bow, at least you can have the peace of mind of, okay, well, yeah, I saw John doing that. This guy's at least on this, on the right track. So hopefully that helps you out, Grant. Appreciate the question. Uh, next question here is from Eric Ferguson. He's saying, um, is there a point, is there a point with arrow weight that you could be too heavy for the draw weight you have with the same FOC. I'm talking extreme. I like about 15 to 17 percent FOC, which means front of center. But some friends of mine strive for over 25 percent. Is there more advantage to that shooting the bows um, that we shoot today? So, yeah, I would say 25 percent front of center is definitely getting pretty high on the extreme side um 
it just really gets difficult. I can tell you right now, most because unless your friends are shooting low poundage, the ability for them to find an arrow that's going to be stiff enough for them to load that much weight in the front of it and still be able to have that kind of FOC, um, it's going to be fairly limited. Uh, you're just not able to put that much weight in the front of your arrow shaft without having to shoot a shaft that's really, really stiffer than what you would call for. And in most cases, like for me, you know, I can't, there's no way for me to shoot more than like 75 grains of brass in the front of my arrow just because they don't make a spine stiff enough for me to do it. Um, or I would have to shoot like a massive overdraw to where I could shorten my arrow enough to stiffen it up um, dramatically. You know, the 15-17% is considered, uh, by a lot of people, that would be considered extremely high as it is. Um, I feel like the 15-17% to 17 is a very, very good uh, percentage. For those of you out there kind of figuring out um, try, or trying to understand what we're talking about, um, you know, you could always Google um, FOC calculator and the FOC calculator there's lots of different ones but I think there's like one site that I'm, I haven't even really used it but I know the gold tip site has one um, there's one that's archerycalculator.com but you pretty much enter in um, a couple different important things with your arrow shaft and then it'll give you the what your front of center is um, and it'll give you a percentage and you mainly just need, um, you know, you need your arrow length, um, from, you know, your overall arrow length. And then, you know, the, the different ways of doing it, there's actually a formula to it. And I'm not really a mathematical genius. I just know that, um, I put them in there. The other thing you have to do is you have to like find your actual balance point on your arrow and know what that measurement is as well. But then when you enter in um, your total length and then you enter in what your balance point of your arrow, like where you can take your arrow and hold it on your finger and you know your veins and the bulk of your arrow shaft are on one side of your finger balancing and then a smaller area and just the point are on the other side balancing. When you enter those into the calculator, it'll give you your front of center percentage. And, you know, most people out there are probably shooting anywhere from eight to nine, 10% at most. Um, and by going to like brass inserts, you can get up around that 12 to, you know, 17%. I really feel like going to a, a, a higher FOC and going to a heavier overall arrow is a really good way to boost your penetration and also your flight characteristics and your abilities to shoot a lot of different styles of broadheads. But as soon as you're trying to add in that factor of speed, um, you just, you know, you dramatically start to just change a whole bunch of elements to 
this equation. You know, once, um, for example, some people like shooting 80 pounds because they want to be able, you know, to still be able to shoot that higher speed um, with even a heavier arrow, which from a destruction point of view or a penetration point of view, it's certainly going to give you that. However, you know, you really start to, once you get up in those higher poundages around 80 pounds, you start to get real limited pretty quick on what arrow is going to work at that poundage. Because once you start to increase, you know, you try to get your FOC up a little bit, then you quickly start to not have a stiff enough arrow shaft because that extra point weight that you're adding in the front to get your FOC up, it starts to, you know, starts to take away from the spine matching your bow setup. So it's kind of a tricky thing, you know, once, once you start to get your speed too high, you start to really limit the style of broadheads you can shoot. Um, or you start to really force yourself into having to shoot a lot bigger fletching in order to steer the types of broadheads that you shoot. Um, I found that for me personally, having a longer arrow, it starts to get a little bit more complicated to tune fixed blade broadheads compared to people that have a shorter arrow. So, you know, there's pros and cons. I get more uh power stroke out of a bow by having a 31 inch draw however because my arrow's longer i do have a lot more complication for tuning a broadhead because it seems like my paradox is a little bit bigger uh, because that arrow shaft is longer versus a real short arrow i also have a lot more wind drift and a lot more i've got i've got probably lower ballistic values compared to someone that's able to shoot a short heavy shaft so uh there's a lot of ups and downs i would say if you're if you're able to get close to that 15 mark um the proof's really going to be in the pudding you know you almost need to shoot both of those setups and see which one's actually giving you the best grouping i would venture to say I've shot a lot of bows in that 15 to 17%, and I don't think it's possible for a bow to group any better. Um, And, you know, I certainly think if they did have 25%, they could maybe argue that they're going to have better penetration at longer distances simply because in order to get that number, their overall number is probably going to be higher as well. Um, But... You know, I think there's a point where too much or, you know, I guess too much does start to become an issue. Um, I've never had any target bows that shot good once I get over that 20% mark. So I would have to argue the same for a hunting situation. Uh, Next question here is from John Schmidt. Said he's made the switch to an evolution this summer and love it. However, I noticed how much the shaft rotates from the jaw on the D loop when I rotate the release vertical against my face using other handheld releases. Um, they all seem to have this same torque on the string from the jaw hook and how it clips on the loop. 
Every target archer goes along to long lengths to remove any source of torque on the bow system, but almost all of them shoot handheld releases. How do you address and resolve this string's torque from the handheld release aid? So what John's talking about here is there. Um, when I did that podcast with Working Class Bowhunter, we actually got on the subject of release aids, and I started to talk about why I designed the release aid that I'm personally using and the one that we're selling, and it was because it starts to minimize torque. Um, one thing that you really want to do and what's important about having a D-loop is you know, a lot of people assume the D-loop is only so you don't wear your string out by clipping your release on it. Back in the day when we used to clip our release right under the arrow knock, you always had to replace your serving on your bowstring because the jaws of your release would just wear through your serving. Then once we went to the D-loop, one, it started to prevent us from having to reserve our center serving, but also it started to help us in minimizing torque on the string. So the shorter your loop is, the more ability you have to apply torque on the string when you turn your hand. I personally don't like to have my release perfectly vertical. I like to have my release, you know, probably, I would venture to say it about, hmm, trying to think here that would be I would say mine's probably at about 40 degrees um, the you want your hand to be slightly turned but you don't want it to be perfectly vertical if your hand is perfectly straight up and down like you know I'm, I'm kind of looking at um, if you're holding your hand out straight in front of you with a handheld release most people would draw it back with your pinky pointing at like a three o'clock um, position. And then as people come to full draw, they turn their pinky around and they'll turn it up to like the 12 o'clock position. That's too far because the more you turn your hand upside down, the more pressure you start to put on that string. You're right. Now, the longer your D loop is, the more you can get away with on turning your hand before it starts to twist that string and put a weird pressure on the knock itself. So I like to have my bow fit me to where the string comes to a stop at the corner of my mouth and, and the string can sit at the tip of my nose and then I adjust the D loop so that my anchor can be back in the position that I want it to on my face. And with me, that allows me to have about a three quarter inch to seven eighths of an inch D loop. Now, when you shorter shoot a really short D loop, that means that you probably have to have more string back on your face in order to get back to your anchor position. And that's a pretty common mistake that people make too. And one that can give you tuning issues is having your arrow shaft and your string come too far back on your face. You really want that that string to stop at the corner of your mouth or barely slightly past the corner of your mouth. And then you want to have your D-loop adjusted 
and your D loop might have to be different lengths depending on the style of release you shoot. Um, I personally like the knock to it release because the distance from where you're grabbing the release to where the actual opening jaw is, is a shorter length compared to some of the older style handheld releases. And what that allows is, is it allows you to have a slightly longer D loop to acquire the same anchor point. And by having that D loop, you start to minimize the string torque or the string string twist that you have shooting a handheld release. So you want to make sure that you have a D loop that I would say is at least a half inch, preferably three quarters of an inch in length. Have your bow adjusted so that you're able to shoot that length of D loop with um, a correct draw length set on your bow. And this, this um, loop length that I just talked about is really specific to handheld release shooters. Now, if you're a caliper release shooter, you can get away with shooting, um, or a wrist strap release shooter, you can get away with shooting a shorter loop simply because all you really need to worry about is the distance when you clip your arrow on the string. As long as you can close your release inside of that loop without contacting the back of the arrow, then you're fine because when you draw back with an index release, you're not twisting the string, you're pretty much leaving it in a perfectly uh, normal position. So you don't really have to shoot a long D loop in order to avoid that twist. But typically, three quarters of an inch on your D loop allows you to rotate your hand and not have any issues. And there's another thing too, when in that knocked and ready to rock segment, you'll see that I I show you how to tie a D loop. And this is important because um, I had a friend that had his bow, um, his bow had a an issue once he got to a, a hunting camp and he ended up having to change his rest. And then he, because he changed the rest, he had to change his knock position too. So he had someone replace um, the D loop that's on there. And it was fine for a temporary fix. However, what what wasn't right about it was for a right-handed shooter shooting a handheld release, you wanna uh, you wanna put your D loop on your string so that the D loop has a natural curve to it that's similar to what your hand is when you come to full draw with the release uh, handheld release. And by this, um, I'm talking about. If you're looking directly over your bow or over the top of your your bow string, the way I teach you to tie your D loop is your D loop is tied on the left side of the string on the top and then it comes up over the string to the right side of um, the string when it's when it's tied to the bottom. So in other words, it goes from the left side and it comes up and down to the right side um, where it's tied on the bottom. And that naturally puts a slight turn to your D loop. So if you're looking at your D loop from the back of the bow, 
your D loop, instead of pointing perfectly up and down like 12 o'clock, it's actually turned to where your D loop almost looks like it's kind of leaning to like 11 o'clock, 11 or 12 o'clock. So if you imagine clipping your release on there and then turning your hand on that slight angle that I was talking about, you've already allowed your D loop to do that without actually twisting the string as well. So little things like that make a big difference. Um, a lot of times I don't go into depth of why I'm why I'm like tying a D loop the exact way I do, but that's why. And a lot of times if I work on someone's bow, which there's very few people that I do that for as a favor now, um, as soon as I get a bow back, I pick out little small things like that and I'll say, well, who changed this D loop? And they'll say, well, it's the same one. And then I'm thinking, well, no, it's not because I'd never tie it that way. But um, those are the small little things that I think can make a big difference. If you're shooting that handheld release, try to avoid turning your hand all the way so that your pinky is touching your face. You really want to just have your index finger under your jaw, your middle finger above the jawbone line and then you should barely start to feel your ring finger on your face if you're shooting like a three finger release if you're turning it up so much to where you're feeling your pinky then that also means you're starting to turn your index finger away from your jaw that starts to get a little bit um you're kind of starting to get in an area of um being dangerous for repeatability you're you're going to start to lack repeatability um, in that position uh, moving on uh, next question i got here is from chris teddy um so he's saying um and actually i'm going to go back quick so this is important when we talk about d loops um it's important with d loops especially like my knock to it release the knock to it is an auto closing jaw so you know you're you as you cock the release it's closing the jaw now a lot of people um i shouldn't say that i shouldn't say a lot of people but there's been a few people who have had that release go off prematurely and what i've found is if you have the people who have a short d loop they're not able to get that release all the way inside or the hook all the way inside of their D loop when they push the release to close the jaw. If you're shooting, if you're trying to maneuver and close this jaw around this teeny little opening on a short D loop, what happens is it'll, it's not going past or clearing that D loop a hundred percent when it's actually cocking and, and the, the, the back of the release is cocking, but the, the hook itself is like kind of snagged on your short little D loop. So a really important way to do that is to actually make sure that you have a long enough D loop to where you can push that D loop all the way to the back of the casing in the the D loop slot have it all the way to the back then cock the release so that it closes and you're not pinching that D loop in the jaw um, it's really important and a, and a safe way to do it to make sure that you're doing that is actually when you're holding your release 
to load it at the bottom side of your loop instead of trying to load it from the back or a lot of people try to load it down and you can't really see um, if that D loop is all the way at the back of the casing or not. So if you kind of just turn your hand up, you can slide your, your release up on the D loop, make sure that D loop goes all the way to the bottom of that casing. And then as you cock it, you can see that your, your jaw cocks closed around the D loop without any impingement. Um, it's pretty, pretty good way to do it. If you're new to handheld releases, um, that's kind of a, a, a safe way to load those to make sure that you're not clamping it on there. It's really no different than um, even with the caliper release, you know, if you push your release forward to close your caliper style release, if you pin push it forward and pinch on that, um, that D loop, a lot of times you'll feel that it, it can't actually close if you're pinching on your D loop. So you kind of have to get your release deeper in there and then close it. Um, with a spring cocking style trigger, it can't quite feel that the same as when you're manually closing it with your finger. So, you know, it's, again, there's give or take. You're getting a much better release because of how crisp and clean the trigger is, and it doesn't have travel compared to a manually operated trigger like a caliper style trigger. Um, but you also have to make sure you're loading it properly. Um, let's see. So next question here, um, is going to be, uh, from Chris Teddy it says, you said that you like a heavy cocking spring in your carters, but could you tell us what specific spring that you like for both your cocking and your trigger spring? So this kind of gets a pretty complicated to be honest with you um so and the reason is is because um the knock to it isn't really like um the other style carter releases that have like an its system um or the you know the tension system um it's kind of unique to its own and the set screw system um requires that the spring fits into a 1032nds tap hole which is a smaller diameter and a longer length than the standard 0 0.180 by 0 0.250 um, which is the ITS springs um, so you know it seems like if you try to figure it out I guess so by way of a comparison um, by the way that they actually rate um, these springs, it seems like um, it's about 62 pounds is what it seems like. Um, the cocking spring is actually a J44, um, and I guess the standard cocking spring, unlike a, you know, when I was talking about the trigger spring, it's, it's about 62. Um, the cocking spring... Um, on the wise choice is a little bit different as well. Um, the one that, um, that I'm using is a 12 pounder, um, versus on some of the other target models, you use a 20 pounder to have the same feel. So it's, it's kind of a, 
it's kind of a weird way of doing it. Like I said, the this particular release isn't like all the Carter releases in the past. If you're used to like a Target 4 or Just Cause, some of those original ones that just came with, with certain springs, um, these Noctuits have a slightly different length spring, so it kind of changes the poundage, so to speak, and also the way it fits in the casing. So it's a little bit more complex. Um, you know, it's it's hard to say exactly if you were going to try to compare it. Um, it's using a 62-pound spring, but I think you would probably get a similar result on the second to heaviest spring, like on an older system, if that's what you're trying to do. I'm just assuming you're trying to get that same feel. Um, next question here is from Robert Joyce. Uh, says, I just had surgery on my neck and I feel much better. My question is, how do you keep from going crazy on recovery time and not being able to shoot? I just want to scream, cry, kill something or someone. Okay, hold up, dude. Let's end it on the someone thing. Well, I know the answer. Um, I know the answer, a Hoyt left-hand bow, but I don't have that option. Okay. Yeah, I think I remember seeing your picture, Robert, of your big old cut through your neck from that surgery. Um, sorry to hear about that, man. Yeah, it's it's a bummer. Recovery time uh, can can way on you um, main thing is you know use that time to do something that is archery related um, but maybe isn't specific to shooting i know that it's hunting season which is probably making it worse for you but you know you can kind of take this situation and relate it to um, a process that i incorporate into my training into my more or less my training routine, something that I called selective cycling. And what I mean by that is I like to do archery all the time, but there's also, there's times where I shoot a lot and I practice a lot, but there's also times where I might shoot less and I do, um, I'm kind of prepping more, meaning I'm, you know, doing a lot more work on my bows. Um, this could be a really good time for you to like watch that knocked and ready to rock series, you know, maybe buy a bow press by, you know, get that knocked and ready to rock series, learn more about your equipment, learn how to work on some of that stuff. Maybe it's buying a fletching jig and just learning to fletch your arrows for the first time ever. Um, a lot of those small things like that are super time consuming. You know, you might have a whole bunch of arrows sitting there that, you've bought over the last few years and half of them have you know a blazer vein on there and half of them have another style of vein and some of them are this color and some of them are that color i think if you could um if you could just take this time and learn something new to where you could do it yourself on your own equipment i think you would one you're going to become a better archer because you're going to learn more about your own setup but you're also going to be able to get your equipment um, in much better shooting shape to where once you are shooting again, you'll probably be shooting better as it is. So try to put that to use, man. And, uh, you know, I know the feeling. So I guess if you need to scream, go to a football game or something. If you need to cry, uh, go to someone's funeral, 
kill something. Uh, well, I hate to say it, you could always try crossbow. Um, but with someone part, I'd have to talk you out of that one, man. Um, next question here is from Tim Bowery, I believe. Um, he's saying, why whenever I look, national or international, um, people shoot stiffer and more upward launcher blades? He says, I shoot an AAE freak show overdraw with an thousandths fairly flat um, with good clearance of my veins, even for indoor shooting with 2315 arrows. I've tried a more upward launcher, but I, but I have, um, I have to know, or I have, but I have no, it gives me less grouping and most important, less forgiveness. Am I doing this good or wrong? Um, so he's talking specifically about a launcher style arrow rest. And in this case, he's talking about an AAE freak show, which is actually what I'm going to be switching to for my arrow rest as well. And, um, so they have different thicknesses of launcher blades and the thickness of your launcher blade will give you a certain result for tuning, but also the angle of your launcher blade gives you a result as well. And I shoot my launcher blade laying down at about 36 degrees, um, 33 to 36 degrees. And some of the original arrow rests were much more vertical. Um, back when I shot trophy takers, the original spring steel rests had a much, much too high of a, um, an angle on the blades. And I think a lot of people that still have those rests just shoot them that way because they don't have the option to adjust them. Then we finally came up with the ability to adjust that blade and move that blade angle. But this kind of goes back to archery shops. Unfortunately, there's a lot of archery shops that take that rest out of the package and they just don't spend the time um, adjusting the dang thing to a preferred angle. Um, and I think in the production, they just kind of set it at an, at an angle that's safest for people to draw without their arrow coming off. So when it comes to launchers, a lot can factor in with the thickness of launcher that you shoot. I certainly used to shoot an eight. I shot an eight thousandths blade for most of my outdoor shooting, especially when I shot like lighter ACE arrows. Um, once I got into shooting X tens, I started to take a ten thousandths launcher and actually cut it in half. And I would lay that ten thousandths launcher underneath the eight thousandths. So the eight thousandths would have support halfway up the blade and that would prevent just having it bend. You know, what's kind of stinks about a launcher blade is traveling with them. Um, you know, if you ever have anything bounce around your bow case and hit your launcher blade, it'll just bend it and then you're kind of screwed. Um, or, you know, even being out on a field course, you come around a corner and you, catch your launcher blade on your pants and then you bend the damn thing and then you're kind of screwed. So just having that, that extra, um, half of a launcher blade underneath my 
weaker blade it kind of just made it easier for travel but it still was flexible enough on the end of the launcher to be able to have give and be able to serve the purpose that it's supposed to for moving and allowing that arrow to go through the other thing is different lengths of blades like there's some blades um, for example on the trophy takers there was a spring steel one and a spring steel two um, the spring steel one had uh, a longer blade than the spring steel two. So an eight thousandths blade on a longer blade is more flexible than an eight thousandths in a shorter blade. Obviously the shorter something gets, the stiffer it gets, just like an arrow shaft. Um, you know, you can, you can have a 2315, but if you're shooting it at a full length 33 inches, it's a lot weaker than if you're going to shoot it at 29 inches. So the same is true with the launcher blades. Um, I personally like to try to shoot as weak of a blade as I can, but still be able to keep the angle, that angle right at about, you know, 34, 35, 36 degrees. I like it to be somewhat flat so that it's not just kind of giving you what's called springboarding, which means if you're if your launcher is too vertical, as soon as you shoot and your arrow starts to naturally paradox or naturally start to bend, it starts to push down on that launcher and then that launcher just kind of kicks back. And that's why um, some people have issues with high tears through paper and they can't fix them. It's because that launcher is either too stiff or too vertical and it's doing that little spring springboard motion and it's hitting the back of the arrow and kicking it up through as it's going through the paper and that's why on some people when they shoot if they have too stiff of a blade or too high of a blade angle you can hear their bow kind of go ding and it's it's that launcher blade it's telling you that you're getting much too uh much too much contact as that arrow is passing through it it's it's springboarding um what you're doing, I would say, is is right, Tim. You know, if you're able to keep your 2315 um, arrow on that 8,000th blade that's fairly flat, as long as your arrow isn't bouncing up and down kind of noticeably as you're drawing back, if you have too weak of a blade, you'll start to get highs and lows. So if you're struggling with shooting indoor rounds if you're sitting there you know if you're shooting 23 15s with 180 grain points obviously you're shooting indoors so if you look at your target face and your grouping is all vertical then i would say you could potentially be a little bit weak on your blade um and then you kind of have the option to either slightly start to raise it or keep that angle flat and just go to a ten thousandths blade and see if it eliminates your vertical grouping. If you're not having issues with vertical um, impacts, then I would say stick with what you got because the way you're shooting it is much similar to, to how I would personally as well. Uh, next question here is from Corey Betchold. I don't know if I pronounce that right. Um, saying, how about breaking down whitetail bucks first movement prior to the rut? Um, some tips on locations we could put ourselves in to put one down. Um, so I kind of don't 
really want to have to navigate you guys somewhere, but this was actually a question that the um, that the working class bow hunter guys asked me last night on that podcast. I gave them some really cool um, information on whitetails, so I'm going to tell you to listen to that. Um, I don't know if they've posted it yet. I'm going to probably text them here when I'm done with this and tell them that I just plugged them so they better get it up for you guys. Um, but you know, there was a couple different things that I talked about. I talked a lot about, um, you know, this today is the 14th, the today and tomorrow will be good movement days in the evening for bucks. Um, or potentially there's kind of two problems here. One is we're kind of right dead in the middle of the October lull. So the likelihood of you having a mature buck that's a day walker is pretty slim. Um, however, the moon phase right now is going to put you at a decent opportunity to have potential to see one. Um, right now I can, you know, there's just light beaming through my window from outside of my, uh, from outside and it's you know 3 30 in the morning here so it goes to show you how bright that moon is getting i think it'll be full either today or maybe tomorrow so there's gonna start to be a lot more movement after dark as soon as that moon is coming up after dark then the deer are going to be coming up after dark too um and it's going to be extremely bright here for probably leading all the way up until What's normally a very good time of the year for me, which is the end of October, is normally when I see my first big ones. Um, however, because of that that moon being so bright and it's going to start coming up later and later and later in the evening, the morning hunts and the, the mid to late morning hunts during this pre-rut are going to be even better than what they should be uh on a normal moon phase. So I would really key in on those areas. Um, a lot of bucks right now are doing a lot of, um, marking, a lot of scrapes, a lot of rubs. Um, obviously those are getting done at some point. I'm going to venture to say you're going to catch them doing it in the morning right now. It's a good time to catch them, especially with this moon. If you're listening to this podcast today, meaning October 14th, um, if you're listening to it today or the 15th, I would say you still have a pretty dang good shot with this moon coming down in mid-morning, but also you've got a good shot to see um, a, your first decent buck of the year on food in the evening. So take advantage of that. And you know, from there, I can tell you uh, closer to the end of October here, um, we're going to start to get you know, better for afternoon movements. A lot of times during the rut, your your mornings are best, but I think during the first part of this rut, starting about that first week in November, um, the early afternoons and, and afternoon hunting is going to be a little bit better than what it's been in past years, uh, just because that moon is going to be coming down so late in the day um, and take advantage of that. Mid-November is going to be dynamite this year because we're going to have dark of the moon um, right coming in kind of towards that first part of mid-November. And 
you know that dark of the moon is going to be is going to be good to try to hopefully if we can get a little bit of cool weather in that dark moon we'll have a super powerful rut um, very good time of year to touch horns together for the first time and one thing that I told those guys about as well is try to hold off on whacking your does right now I know a lot of guys are getting bored you want to this October lull sometimes suck people want to go out and shoot their doe if you're going to shoot a doe I wouldn't shoot it in an area where you know you've got one of your hit list bucks or where you really want to see a hit list buck um, you're just going to kind of skunk up an area whacking a doe and getting a doe out of there right prior to the best part of the year in my opinion so save your doe tag for after you've dropped your buck at this point or for late late season um, it's always fun to to shoot does in the snow so hold off if you can shoot your buck first your that big doe that you shoot this weekend could easily be the one that drags that buck in front of you a week and a half from now so uh that's kind of my my tip for you Corey. appreciate it and uh, check out that podcast those are some good guys um next question here is for my little dude down in south africa um, i just copied and pasted so many of these comments off i think i got all these comments off the john dudley athlete page i try to rotate where i grab stuff from um, so Daniel Yeel is from South Africa. He is on a rampage right now, shooting some incredible animals and really making a name for himself. Um, his uh, Maybe follow him. You'll see him on my pages. His name is Daniel Yeel. He's from South Africa. Maybe give him a follow. Um, but he's asking, Carbon Defiant 31 or the 34? says I got a 30 inch draw and probably going to be shooting at 73 to 75 pounds. So um, I would say with your 30 inch draw, you're kind of right between. Um, if you're not really focusing on some of the longer range stuff, then I would say probably the 31. Um, I'm personally shooting a 34 mainly because my stature is a lot bigger, but I will say um, when I set up Rogan's 31 and when I set up my good buddy, um, Ben O'Brien from Yeti, set him up a 31 inch bow and I forget, I set, I, I built nine bows in two days and most of them were carbon defiant 31s and those things shot so freaking good. I almost question whether I could shoot someone else's bow three inches too short a draw better than my own. So um, they have a slightly different feel than the 34, you know, just because of the length of the riser and less string, less cable. There's just, in my opinion, there's also just a different frequency to the what little residual vibration is in the bow. Um, and I mean, it's... It's the quietest and deadest in the hand bow I've ever shot. So I'm being extremely picky in saying that. But it just does. It has, you know, it has a different feel to it. I would say um, at that poundage that you're shooting, if you are right at the 30 inch draw, 
I would say go with the 31 because you're going to be able to shoot um, the 31 inch bow with your cam in a D or E position. You're going to be able to shoot that cam in a longer position um, because that's going to be as long as that bow goes on the 31 inch model. If you shoot the the 34 and you're shooting a 30 inch, then you're going to end up being on the same cam as what I'm using, but you're going to be um, in a shorter setting, which efficiency wise, I always prefer to really have a bow that where I'm shooting it, preferably in an E position, but anything from a C to an E, I'm okay with. Um, but I prefer not to shoot them in the A or B slots. So for that reason alone, for you, I would say go with the 31. Um, and shoot something else cool. I'm shooting all kinds of stuff I didn't even know existed. It's kind of neat looking at it. So um, good luck to you, Daniel. And say hi to Seppi for me. And um, have some good South African wine with your, with your lady and to have a toast for me because if i was there i'd be drinking some of your red wine too um so next question here is from tyler willison um tyler saying hey dud any suggestions or direction on getting a 13 year old into competitive archery also will you ever show us pics of your game room um you've taken some amazing animals um i don't know i I'm not a big, I'm not big at like flaunting my game room or even my trophies. It kind of took me a while to even kind of post my titles and stuff from shooting just because, I don't know, as much as I like, as much as I like it, I think some of that stuff is kind of personal or, you know, petty to show off, but um, it is pretty cool in here. I'll tell you that. My office is kind of a little dojo i like it in here um lots of memories around um so that i can tell you maybe one time i'll do a if hoyt if hoyt ever does a hoyt in the house again maybe they'll come here and you guys can see what i got but i'm certainly appreciative and you know i'm real thankful that i have a life shooting a bow and that's that's, you know, shooting a bow has given me what I have. Um, but in regards to your 13-year-old shooting competitive archery, um, really the best thing that you can do is find a good JOAD program. Um, try to find a good JOAD program or see if there's like an Easton center that's close to you by chance. Um, those are really good places to start because they start off kind of a system and a JOAD program is going to get you fairly close, um, to, you know, having the right channels for like U.S. archery and, you know, maybe shooting on some junior, junior teams and things like that. Um, there's a lot of very dedicated, uh, coaches in the JOAD programs and, you know, I think you can really develop some kids great. Um, a buddy of mine, uh, Brian Clatt from up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, his little girl, Desiree, um, who I've seen grow up, you know, 
well, well before she was 13, um, grow up through the JOAD program and through her dad supporting her through the JOAD program. And they actually do a lot of shooting um, up at the, the Yankton um, NFA headquarters of the Easton, uh, the Easton Center up in Yankton, South Dakota. And she is awesome. She, I think she won double gold this year. Um, at, I, I don't want to say it wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was like Joad World Championships or something. But yeah, she won double gold and... I certainly, um, I certainly just feel so good about, you know, even though I've only gave, uh, Brian a few different, uh, directions on things I think he, he should do with her setup and arrows and things like that. And kind of talk through some different release choices she's made, um, earlier on in her career, she, you know, was shooting like kind of a, I think a wrist strap release and got to the point where she was punching it. And, you know, we really just kind of said, listen, you got to commit to getting rid of that thing. But, you know, you got to do it right because that's not, it's not ever going to go away. And then they put in a lot of time and effort. And next thing you know, she's got double gold. So um, I would say get into a Joad program, support her through that. Um, and I think you'll find a lot of good coaching options through that as well. Um, if you're super duper ultra serious, um, I know that the World Archery um, Center of Excellence, the which will be the probably the most coolest ever um, archery training center in the world, is being opened in Switzerland, and they plan to open do an official opening in December. Um, I'm not sure if I'll be there, but I do know I'll be there after that. Um, I actually will be doing private training at the, um, at that center. Um, thanks to my good buddy, Juan Carlos. He asked me to come there and actually train some teams and share an office with them sometimes. So that is going to be where I navigate some of my school of knock students to, um, especially my European ones. So if you're out there and you're a national team or you're a national coach and you're trying to send messages to me through this plethora of messages I get on social media about me working with your team, I can tell you that I'm going to make this really simple. I'm going to be working through Juan Carlos at the World Archery Excellence Center and doing some private one-on-one stuff there on behalf of World Archery, which should be super cool. Um, but I may open my school and knock school here too. I'm not sure. But if you're ultra serious, I know I'm going to be doing um, some different events there with Juan Carlos and help promote that whole center that he's put his blood, sweat, and tears into. Um, and they may take 13-year-olds there. Otherwise, Joad programs... Um, awesome. You'll find cool people and dedicated people to archery and all that good stuff. Easton centers, all good. Um, next question here is from Brody Smith. How much will a clarifier change point of impact from light to dark, meaning in the woods versus in an open field with a four power lens? And will the point of impact difference, differences increase 
as the power of lens and clarifier increase in different lighting conditions. So when he's talking about a clarifier, he's talking about a small lens that's actually in the peep sight, um, which helps you clarify your um, your scope lens. So if you shoot a high-powered lens in your scope, what you'll find is in order to get your image at the target super clear, you have to shoot a very, very, very small peep, and in some cases a micro peep. However, there's also a point where if you don't want to shoot such a small peep sight because it's hard to see in low light conditions, then you'll shoot kind of a more standardized peep size. However, you'll have to shoot a small lens in your peep in order to get a perfectly clear image um, in your scope. And this is one reason why I personally don't like to shoot really high-powered scope lenses. And it's also why I personally only choose super high-quality glass in my lenses. I still shoot um, Swarovski glass. And I shoot it through my Sherlock Black Eagle scopes. And I only shoot Sherlock scopes because of the clarity. Um and I've got old ones. They've been good for me. They're clear. Um, cheaper scopes, cheaper lenses on the market. I'm not saying all of them. There's um, there's a lot of good ones out there. Um, I know my buddy Chuck Cooley. Um, he's kind of a master at like lenses and stuff like that. Um, he's got Feather Vision. He has some really cool um, technology on this too. And this is kind of a loaded question because, you know, when you're talking about scopes and you're talking about clarifiers, it's really hard to know what to exactly tell you because there's a huge difference in quality and grade of glass and plastics and op true optical center. So if you have a real shitty piece of glass or a shitty piece of plastic in the front of your scope, that thing, even if you turn it differently, can change your point of impact. Then if you have a real shitty piece of plastic or glass that's in your peep sight, and certainly ones that don't have a true optical center or don't have a true uh, high-quality glass in there, changing the lighting will cer certainly start to just change how your 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 focus is working and how you're you're looking at things. I know that I've learned over the years, even with shooting out a lens, if I have a lot of light coming right directly behind my head, directly onto the peep sight, through the back of the peep sight, um, my left and right grouping can slightly change on a target versus if I have direct sunlight hit me directly in the face. Which is why when I competed, I would, I always focused more on shading my eye, so that my peep image was more consistent. I like to shade my eye more than like worrying about shading my whole body. Um, so it can vary a lot, you know, depending on what type of lens you're even talking about or what type of clarifier you're talking about. There can be a huge variance in how they shoot in bright light versus dark light. Um, and 
you know, there can always, there can also be a huge difference in how your point of impact changes um, based off how you start to increase that power lens, because it's not necessarily about you just increasing the power lens. If you have a four power lens that's has an, that's truly optical center, but then you go to a six power lens, it's not, then you're going to have a huge difference in impact and there can be a lot of factors there. So I personally like to shoot a lens to where I can still maintain a super crisp, clear image at the target, but also still be able to shoot a peep size that matches the housing of my scope and which also allows me to not shoot a clarifier. I personally don't like clarifiers. They're super hard to keep clean. I've, you know, I've seen people that have used those on a hunt and one drop of rain hits the center of that freaking clarifier and it's like trying to look through a pair of binoculars with rain on the eyepieces. You can't see nothing. Now, if you're if you're starting to fail on your vision, if you're an older, um, well, I shouldn't say older, but if your vision is starting to weaken and you start to really lose your ability to focus on your sight pins and you can't see your pins clearer, then in those cases, you may need a clarifier just to try to clear up what you're seeing through um, your peep itself. So... In those cases, you might need a clarifier, um, but my personal preference is to avoid them if you can. It's just one less thing to to kind of go wrong. Uh, moving on here, Stephen Smith is saying, how do you recommend setting up and executing a shot on a bow like an Elite with a super solid back wall with your with a release like the Evolution, I find that my shots tend to go right as I'm trying to pull through my release, um, and it's only breaking at about two pounds over my holding weight. So this is a little bit um, of a loaded question because without seeing you shoot, I can't necessarily say it's the back wall of your cam. Um, there can be a lot of things that's causing you to miss right. Um, certainly having a super, a super duper solid wall, in my opinion, with any release that has you execute by pulling through. So, you know, I, I can shoot the same type of shot with, um, my silverback release as I can, well, which is close to an evolution, I can shoot the same type of executed shot with that release or a hinge release or a trigger release um, or even a caliper release. I can shoot the same exact shot and that is acquiring the trigger, maintaining the same amount of pressure on that trigger as I continue to contract my rhomboids and pull the release elbow back towards something behind me until that trigger surprisingly fires. Now, the more solid of a wall that bow naturally has, for me, it's simple physics of for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I feel like if I'm trying to slowly and continually pull through the bow, but it's like stopped against a brick wall, I have a hard time having movement in the rear half of my body without having movement in the front half. 
having a cam that has a little bit of give to it really helps with that. And that's why like with Olympic style recurve shooters, when they're continually pulling, pulling, pulling through a clicker, that recurve doesn't stop on a wall. If it stopped on a wall, they would probably not, they would never even shoot the clicker. They would just continually just pull against it as best they can and let go. But, you know, I feel like they can aim better because they're able to pull through that motion without it being at such a dramatic stop. And that's why I personally don't shoot the the limb stop that comes with the Hoyt bows. Now, some people just really like a super rock solid wall and they like to aim. And if you're an aimer and if you have a super solid wall and you just want to sit there and hold on the target and like wait for the release to go off or wait to until you punch the release and make it go off, then having that super dead hard wall is probably favorable. Now, if you don't per- particularly like that and you like to be able to pull through your shot and execute the way that we're talking about you may like to have a solid wall but not a brick wall Um, so that's why I use the cam stops but I don't use the limb stop on my bow Um, I feel like when I had that limb stop I felt the same way if I was really pulling aggressively onto the wall I felt like I was also pulling my front hand off the target more Um, you can always play around with putting something on your stop that has give for example you could put a piece of rubber around it um, try to find some type of rubber that goes around it to where you have some sponge Um, I know that like back in the day um, people really favored the cam and a half systems on the Hoyt target archers versus the spiral systems. And a lot of it was because they still had give. I'm personally in that same position. I'm not an aimer. I'm a puller. So, um, I personally like, for example, a GTX style cam versus the spiral cam, um, on some of the older Hoyts. Now with the cam system that's on uh, with the DFX, it's like on the hyper edge. I shoot the DFX. However, I shoot it without the limb stop. Um, and I like to not have such a rock hard feel. It allows me to pull through without moving off. So you can always try to modify. You could always take a little piece of, um, you know, um, a lot of these companies are making those rubber a sticky rubber pad that you can actually um, either put on like the inside of your riser to like deaden if an arrow's hitting there, um, or they're putting on. Uh, I think I'm trying to think a certain arrow rest company comes with a little bitty uh, soft rubber pad. If you can find something like that and stick it on your limb, right where the, your cams your cam stop comes around and touches your limb then having that little piece of rubber could give you just enough gib to where you didn't have such a rock hard wall and maybe that'll help you out appreciate it steven um next question here is from jason schmidt says um when making the switch from the from a wrist slash index release to a handheld release do you recommend a thumb button knock to it or the resistance style like silverback and i actually had this question um 
sent to me a couple in a couple different ways. So if people are switching to a handheld release, they're kind of wanting to know, well, do I just go with the resistance or I go with the thumb button? And I guess there's a couple factors here. One is if you know that you punch a trigger and if you know that you have any type of target panic, then I'm automatically going to say you should probably focus first on fixing that problem using a resistant style release like Silverback, which is why I've got it. I feel like these are these two releases go hand in hand. One trains and helps develop good habits, and then one lets you allows you to have a little bit more control on how you shoot it. And you know, I guess there's a couple things. One the knock to it, you can clip it on the string, it stays on the string. So if you're in a hunting situation, you can clip it on the string, it's hanging on the bow, it's out there, it's ready. Um, now, if you're not worried about that, on the silverback side, you know it really focuses on proper shot technique and properly pulling through a shot. Um, just last night, I went out and I shot for about an hour and a half and... I shot the entire night with the silverback. Um, and on my last, I'm trying to think, well, on my last hunt um, in Oklahoma, I shot my knock to it. I was in a tree stand. I was kind of sitting there. I always had my bow overhanging on an easy hanger. Um, I was deer hunting and ended up, ended up shooting a bunch of hogs. But um, I had the knock to it there. However, during the day when I would be at camp and I'd be shooting, I just sat there and shot the silverback and I shot it really good. Um, the only thing is, you know, mentally you do have to understand that the silverback, you have to depress the trigger and it's the safety. On the knock to it, if you depress the trigger, it's firing. So, you know, you have to, you have to be able to like mentally be in it. Um, both of those releases have their purpose. Um, if you don't have target panic and you feel like you can shoot a thumb activated release just fine, then you could go to a knock to it and, and be happy. But there, there's two pieces to this puzzle. If you're really shooting properly and you know that you don't have any form flaws, then you can shoot the knock to it. And I guarantee based off that this release and how it was designed and being two fingered, um, it's going to be more accurate than a release that has more fingers on it. Um, but in saying that, if you're not shooting it the proper way, then it's hard to argue um, that it, that a tension activated release wouldn't be better for giving you a surprise shot. Um, you know, however. On a tension-activated release or a back tension release, if you're not taught the proper way to use those, they can be frustrating. You know, I know people that went out and they've bought hinge-style releases. Um, you know, back when like a Stanislavski was the only kind of hinge-style release. Now there's tons of them, but people would buy them and then they would try to shoot them, and they didn't know how to set them up properly, or they didn't really have. You know, they weren't taught correctly how to use them they might didn't know if they should have a click in it or not a click in it and all these things and they just 
never got along with release because they didn't understand how to use it properly. What I can tell you is um, the Silverbacks are will be released when I have filmed a video that will be free to whoever buys it um, that will allow you to see how to set yourself up properly, how to set the release properly, and also give you techniques for training so that you're able to shoot this the correct way and start to continue down a road of having perfect execution in your shots. So um, if you're shooting a wrist release now and an index release, Jason, if you feel like you're making good shots with that, I think you'll be just fine with a knock to it. If you know that you have bad habits with that and you're wanting to just totally commit yourself to learning how to become, in my opinion, the best archer possible, um, then you may want to start um, with the silverback and then gravitate towards training with the silverback and you know shooting for fun with your knock to it. Um, they're designed to be the exact same fit um, how they fit the string, the length, everything. Um, like I said, the big difference is one attaches to the string and can stay on the string, and one can't. Um, the evo- the silverback or an evolution, it can't close and contain on the loop because then you would have to like hold your string and like pull and pluck against the release in order to get it to open the jaw because. Again, that works off pulling pressure, so you'd have to pull it hard enough to get it to trip open, um, which is why it's a, a half-closed hook so that you can you know, have it cocked and put it on your loop or take it off your loop without actually having to fire it. Um, last question here I'm going to do is from John Randall. Uh, we're an hour and a half into a podcast, so you almost got a double. Um I guess one of the benefits to being up this early, my coffee right now is, uh, I don't know what's up with coffee, but like if coffee sits around too long, it starts to get kind of funky. Um, Sharon got this Nespresso machine, that one that uh, Danny DeVito and George Clooney had the commercials on. She got a coffee machine with that Nespresso and it does make a it does make a badass cup of coffee. Um, however, and it looks like something you got out of Starbucks, but about an hour later, it kind of looks like toilet water. I'm not gonna lie. It it looks like the bottom of an outhouse. Um, but I drank it. Uh, but anyway, I'm running out of coffee. I don't like drinking outhouse water, so we're gonna do one last question, then I'm gonna go make a fresh cup. Uh, Josh Randall is asking, John, what is the purpose of putting a vinyl strip on the carbon arrows to attach fletching? Um, and why not just go straight to the arrow shaft with the fletchings? So one, uh, I found that fletchings of all sorts and Maybe it's not the fletching, but it's probably the glues. I found that the glues cure better on vinyl. Um, Back when I shot, um, 
like fletch tight on all of my target arrows. It was a slow cure glue. I just found that it cured even better on vinyl. Um, even when I tried to do feathers, like feathers were always a pain in the ass to, um, to fletch. But when I would fletch feathers, I found that if I had a small little carbon wrap or a vinyl wrap on my aluminum arrows or anything else, that glue would cure faster and it would it would stay on there better. Um, and what happens is once you lose a fletching and you want to redo it or if you want to remove your fletching, you can just remove the vinyl and you're not actually having to scrape and cut carbon. Um, fletchings definitely adhere really good to carbon um, because carbon's porous, like super glues, they cure really good and everything and things attach to them really well. But the problem is once you have to remove that and you have to break that off of that carbon, um, you start to, you start to kind of change um, the strength of that carbon shaft and sometimes you if you're having to shave carbon off in order to get the glue off you're actually damaging that arrow and potentially um, putting yourself at risk of being a bit dangerous so I really like to use vinyl all the time um, I personally use custom arrow wraps uh, they're from the guys that make socks arrow wraps um, you can go to customarrowwraps.com. That's where I get mine. Um, they do have some uh, knock-on wraps. That's where I get people ask me that too all the time. Um, I'm just typing in here, custom arrow wraps. Typing in my Google search right now. Yeah, I'm sure it's um, customarrowwraps.com is, is what it was pretty sure custom arrow I'm so bad at this I normally like I've been so behind I've even had people like order my arrows for me um, but yeah maybe that's not it I don't know maybe that's not it I don't know got a got a new I'm at a different website right now so I don't know maybe they got hacked but I thought it was customarrowwraps.com, but it's from the same people that make um, socks, arrow wraps. So they're some really cool dudes. And yeah, custommadearrowwraps.com. Oh, okay. It's custom made, custommadewraps.com. Sorry for people listening to the podcast and I'm like, but that's one of the beauties of not being scripted. Yep, custommadewraps.com. That's where I get mine. And, yep, and if you go to Arrow Wraps, which is like their top left tab, the first thing you'll scroll down to is it'll say Knock On. Click on that, and it shows you like six kick-ass designs that, I made with my little web guru ninja Antoine and sadly enough um, Antoine always orders my wraps for me because I don't have time to do it I just kind of tell him dude get me some wraps so he'll order them for me Um, but I love them they work really cool and a lot of celebrities are using them now too 
case that really matters. But vinyl will save your arrow shaft. It'll save you money, and it'll prevent you from shooting your arm with an arrow, possibly. Um, definitely don't want to heat up carbon to remove inserts. You don't want to shave carbon to remove fletchings. Uh, carbon is best when it's left alone. So I use that. makes my glue cure faster. Um, kind of gives it a bright look and helps me find my arrows and keeps me safe. So thanks, Josh. I appreciate it, man. Um, I don't know. That's it. All I can tell you is I am going to be doing some whitetail hunting here soon. I'm super pumped. Um, I've I put out cameras in a bunch of different spots this year. I'm going to, you may see, if you're in Iowa, you might see the knock truck sneaking into some public ground. I, uh, I found some good bucks on public ground and I want to kill one of them. So that's my plan. Appreciate the heck out of all you out there. And, uh, my plan is to get this sucker loaded up. So when all of your alarm clocks are going off between five and 7 AM, you're like, holy crap, there's a two hour long knock on podcast waiting for me. So thanks everybody. Appreciate it. Uh, make sure you show your support. Tell all my sponsors that you know that I have that I'm doing good for them. And, uh, and that you're buying their product every day. I don't really push you that way, but just tell them that anyway. So talk to you guys later. Appreciate it. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com